Hello, world. Welcome to episode four of the Black and White Theology podcast. I am Noah Filipiak, and I am here with Tyler St. Clair. We are your Oreo cookie, your burnt, oh, wow. your burnt, oh. your burnt marshmallow, mm. your chocolate and vanilla twist. How you doing, None, Tyler? I don't accept any of those things that you just said. <laughs> <laughs> they're all no, de- they're all delicious. Okay. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless. My How are you, heart. sir? Uh, pretty good. My friend. Two nights ago, my my 11 month uh, year old daughter decided to wake up at 3 a.m., which is not unusual. So my wife kicked me, and it was my turn to go and you know get her to go back to sleep, feed her, and all that stuff. Well, then I had insomnia. Yeah. Let me pull out my tiny violin for you. Yeah. Let me finish my story because you asked me how I was doing. So if you don't want, don't, if you don't want I didn't truth, care. I didn't really care. I just, that's just something we say. If you don't want truth and honesty, don't ask me. So okay. I couldn't fall back asleep. So yesterday was a fun day. I I was up since 3 a.m. But today, the Lord worked a miracle and she slept. She slept through the night. So that's my long story. I'm doing great. I feel like a human being. So did that miracle involve Robitussin? No, it, it did not. <laughs> No vodka involved. It was a pure act of the Holy Spirit. So, well, uh, we are going to get started with our mailbag this morning. Do you want to preview our topics for today? You didn't last time, so I, I, I don't know why I'm asking you, but what do you, you want to preview our topics for today, or should we just jump right to the mailbag? No, let's keep it moving. Keep this train moving. Keep it moving. All right. Mailbag time. Mail time. Mail time. You can email our show, bwtheology at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at bwtheology. We will follow you back so that you can send us direct messages. We told you last episode not to email us anymore because we're quite behind on uh, emails. So you did a good job. We didn't get any new emails. We have a whole bunch to get caught up on. Uh, Start with Chris Wander. I want you to know you have a great question. We're going to push your question back to another episode uh, because it'll take us a while to walk through it. Shouts to my man, Chris and Clio. That's right. Joe Swords Church. Those are two. I love those two guys. Cool. Fine Americans. So we will get to Lauren's question. Uh, Lauren, we did not get to last episode, says, thank you for doing this podcast. I live in Arlington, Washington. See, world. See what we're saying here, Tyler? We're we're reaching to... We're almost the ends of the earth. We're we're out into wow. Okay. We are big in Washington. We need a T-shirt that says that. Uh, I, so he says, I live in Arlington, Washington, involved in a group called Racial Reconciliation through the Gospel, and I have shared your podcast with my group. Thank oh, you, Lauren. God. I have two things now: uh, a statement and a question. Statement is a, a tagline recommendation for our show, so we appreciate that. It's a little too serious, though. We're kind of looking for something a little more snarky. So uh, because it's serious, I won't read it. It's a good one. Uh, But the question we will deal with, how do we avoid presenting God as a white 
old man. I had a five-year-old black girl tell me she wishes she was white because that is how she sees God. Your, mm. your brother in Christ, Lauren Goach. So, Yeesh. Tyler, I will let you start with that. How do we avoid presenting God as a white old man? Well, um, I, it's funny. So, I'm black, um, and I've actually recently had this conversation with my children because one of my children said something along the lines of, you know, Jesus being white. And I was like, um, if you ever say that again, you'll be disowned and you won't allow be allowed to live in this house. <laughs> no, but but it, it is it's so pervasive that I mean, you go to any Christian bookstore, the imagery, the books, um, the videos, it's, it's a fair skinned uh, European looking uh, person and, and all the disciples. And and it's funny, even even Egyptians, I've read books about uh, Moses and whatnot. Uh, people in Egypt are brown. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we just need to be super intentional about showing um, when you see Cush in the Bible, say, you know, Cush is, I believe Cush was Ethiopia, I believe. No, where's Cush? I can't remember. Um, but when you see uh, Ethiopia or Cush or Cyrene or um, uh, Egypt, you, you, you make sure that you clarify and say, no, see, this is Africa. And when we talk about uh, people in the Middle East and we say we, when, when, when Jesus comes up in and, and, um, Jerusalem, we say, no, th- these are Middle Eastern people and, and maybe pull up something online. Like, see, this is what people in the Middle East look like. They don't look like um, Europeans. Um, that, that needs to be pointed out because, man, that was something that I wrestled with as a child. I would go to church every single Sunday and stare at a massive 10-foot-tall picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, and that gave me all kind of uh, identity issues um, and uh, identity, uh, cultural, and ethnic inferiority because I'm not white. I'm not blonde. Uh, I don't have blue eyes. Uh, I don't have much European descent. I'm sure there are some. But, um, yeah, I just think we need to have these conversations, especially with children, because um, what they see is reality to them. So, Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting with even his with Lauren's question, it was a girl asking about God's skin color and mm-hmm. God doesn't have a skin color. I mean, right. G- Jesus is God in the flesh and Jesus has had and has a skin color. Uh, God does not have a skin color and, and the so, father, the father. Yeah, the right. father. Mm-hmm. And so when you when it, the the way that we portray the biblical story from Adam and Eve. I mean, how many pictures have you seen of Adam and Eve and they're white and, you know, Eve has long blonde hair, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just that sort of thing. These are, you know, we're talking about the Bible here, right? So we stand on the Bible as God's truth, as his inerrant authoritative truth. And to present Adam and Eve as being white, or Jesus as being white, or Moses as being white. That is as unbiblical of truth as a false doctrine would be, right? I mean, and so these are not just cavalier, random sort of things. These have everything, because just like a a picture of God, let's say a false doctrine of God being uh, 
you know, that, that God wants you to be like we, we've talked, I guess, so far in this podcast a, a bit about money and, and those sorts of things. God wants you to have a fifty four million dollar jet like Jesse <laughs> Duplantis got or he wants. Uh, you know, we would say uh, that's not exactly the, what the Bible lays out as God's will for your life mm-hmm. or that if you sow a seed of faith, you'll you'll get that, you know. Right. Um, and so we can agree that that's damaging to who God is because it's not biblical. Well, to present the like, open your, your kids, your kids, uh, children's Bible. And Mm -hmm. if the people in that book are not at least dark complected, nobody in the middle East had blonde hair. I mean, nobody, right. And uh, you, you had dark people, you had middle Eastern people, you had Arabic people, you had African people. And that is the picture of, the Bible. It's the picture of what Jesus would have looked like. And mm-hmm. so going back to Lauren's question, you have a five-year-old black girl wanting to be white. There's something yeah. deeper there as well, because mm-hmm. she's grown up in a country where white people have power and white is associated with power. But you could white people in many respects have had financial success and those sorts of things that she may or may not have seen in her black community. And so she wants to be white because she's associating power, success mm-hmm. with being white. And God is powerful. And so white beauty, becomes, beauty, beauty as well. Beauty, beauty as, as well, well. for yeah. girls. Absolutely. So this is this is deep stuff. So, I mean, Lauren's question is pretty practical. How does he explain to her that God is not white? Um, it's to a five year old. I mean, I, I have a I have a six year old daughter and a four year old daughter. So. I think there are certain things you can show her about Jesus that mm-hmm. there there would not have been white people, there would not have been white Europeans in the ancient Near East. And you can you there's some of those things a five year old might be able to grasp. Right. But I would say when it comes to God himself, I would say God does not have a skin color. And the that's father. The father. Yeah, the mm-hmm. father, thank right. you. That's something that um a five-year-old, I think, can grasp, but I mm-hmm. think that for a black girl, she can grasp that Jesus was not white, and there's and you can also go another step, thinking back even to um, James Cone's theology last episode, how much he emphasized that Jesus was a minority. So mm-hmm. Jesus was a minority uh, Jew. You know, I guess some of the Romans would have been white. Some of the Romans and the Greeks would have been white. Some of those, the mm-hmm. Roman soldiers that were imported, that you know, the Roman Empire was an imported empire. So, right, uh, you, you know, and I don't have a PhD in this, but but I um, I think it's safe to say some of the Romans definitely would have been white. And you have Rome, Italy. You know, people in Italy are Italian and they're white, uh, though not blonde haired white, but still, you know, right. you could picture Pontius Pilate probably was white. Um, Jesus was the oppressed people group of the Roman Empire. And so for a black Mm -hmm. five-year-old girl, I mean, James Cohn would say, you and Jesus have a lot in common. You have more in common with Jesus than you do with the Roman soldiers. You know, Jesus was the oppressed people as you're the oppressed people. He he can relate to those that have been oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, using that to fuel what does it look like to be an agent of love uh, right. In a multi-ethnic society like ours, a society where there's unequal power structures and all these sorts of things. I mean, I think there's simple things a five-year-old can understand that right. 
Jesus is a lot like me, a lot more like me than, than I than I knew uh, from what I saw in church. I would, um, yeah, I agree with all of that. I would also just super practically um, try to find uh, Christian children's books where they have people of color. Yeah. Um, I have to, I have to look through mine because um, we actually, like I said, we've been having these conversations with my kids because uh, we actually got rid of some books because I'm like, man, this don't look like, this looks like these people were from, from Norway. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, Lily, Lily, Lily white. So I mean, so we got rid of them just because it's, um, it, it creates all kinds of uh, image issues, you know, and, and, and especially with, with girls, you know, I'm walking through a lot of um, image issues because the image of beauty that is presented in our country is a, um, uh, skinny to frail European, yeah. uh, long flowing hair. Uh, that's what our country says is beautiful. Uh, that's the imagery, you know, and that doesn't sit well with a, uh, for a father who has four black girls right. and they don't, they don't have long <laughs> flowing straight hair. Um, so yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard because you, you what's told is beauty. You look in the mirror, and you don't see you don't see that. You know that's just another cultural dynamic. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give this child a James Cone book. Uh, I would give them, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would give them books with. I mean, and there are children's books with people of color um, that probably are ten times more accurate than the ones I had growing up and the ones I've seen, but also. Uh, I would take a small page out of James Cone book um, and just emphasize the fact that you are an image bearer. You're creating the image of God, um, despite what beauty uh, is peddled to us. You are beautiful. Black is beautiful. Um, white is beautiful. Asian is beautiful. It's all beautiful. There's no yeah. superior um, beauty. We all created an image of God. And God is a God who um, glories and delights in the fact that he has billions of people that all reflect his uh, glorious image, and they all look totally different. And there's no one superior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll close that this question with, so, you know, I, I don't know, uh, the uh, Lauren, you know, your, if, your ethnic background, if you're, if you're white. So my, my, my context is I'm white. And our church has is predominantly white. And then we started doing inner city park ministry in our city. And so we had this large group of black kids coming to our church. And our church is filled with white people, white leaders, white pastors, white teachers. And so that's that was 10 years ago. And that's one of the catalysts for us realizing our church needs to become multi-ethnic because whether you mean to or not when we go into these inner city parks full of kids with color and we're all white and we say come follow Jesus come follow me as I follow Jesus it's really hard for them to not picture God or Jesus mm -hmm. as being white at that point uh, right. versus if they've had leaders of color in their life spiritual leaders of color pastors of color you know and so uh, it's not a change you can make overnight but that's something in your church setting or whatever ministry setting you're in with that five-year-old girl, you need to try to get her around black and other people of color 
leaders who love Jesus who can disciple her and mentor her, not exclusively, I mean, in, in diversity, but when she starts to see that, then she'll start to see, oh, God isn't only white because I have these other role models in my life that are people of color. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the real tragedy of the segregated church. I mean, that's yeah. one of the tragic byproducts of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen and all that. So we'll do one more question from the mailbag. This one is from Alan from last episode. We read one of Alan's. We'll go back and read uh, what his second question. He says, uh, maybe it's me, but it seems like an unspoken push that the white evangelical church experience is the model the wider church should aspire to. <laughs> maybe not a full mega church, but kind of having all the bells and whistles. <laughs> but hasn't the black church experience in America through history been closer to what it means to be God's people in this world? I know that's a broad generalization, but the point still stands. Isn't how we view what a church should be a blind spot? Alan answered his own question, in my opinion. Sure. <laughs> that's, that's why I started laughing. Um, you look at, uh, so last year, uh, last year and going into this year, I preached through the book of First Peter um, at our church. And the whole, one of the main themes of the book of First Peter is living as, uh, he uses the phrase, aliens, pilgrims, strangers, um, living as a people on earth, but this is not really our home, um, not being, not, not fitting in, being ostracized, being right. pushed out. Um, and that has always been, that's been the black experience and the black church experience. I mean, again, it was birthed. The black church was birthed out of segregation. Um, you're not allowed here. So um, um, they started the AME church, uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and those guys. They, they, and, um, they kneeled in St. George Church in the whites only section and 30 blacks were uh, put out uh, and um, excommunicated, and they started the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, Mother Bethel in uh, Philadelphia. That church uh, still stands today. So that's always been the experience, um, the outsiders that are not let in. Um, and I think that that, ex- that black church experience, and, and we've, never had, we've never had a glut of resources, mm-hmm. never had, never had the, the access to the seminaries and the training and and, and things of this nature. It's, it's been always grassroots. It's always been focused in the community, on the community, serving the people, uh, serving the least lost and the left behind uh, society. So yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. And and that's that that model is funny. So our church is uh, diverse, multi-ethnic and multicultural, but we planted our church um, on the heels of that. Um, one, of the, one of the things I did with my co-pastor uh, Dan Boffman, we were in Philadelphia for a conference, and we visited Mother Bethel Church. That's the church that Richard Allen started. Um, I-, I wanted our church to have that DNA that we're here for the community. We're here for the least lost, left behind. We don't need uh, smoke machines. We don't need. We don't have a huge budget. We meet in an abandoned school that's connected to a church. <laughs> that's what we meet. You know, our sound system was given to us. Our chairs were given to us. Um, we we got a shoestring budget, but we preach the gospel, we make disciples, and we serve our community. And that's what the black church has been doing forever. Yeah. 
never never sexy never never the best trained um but i would argue the black church has had some of the most gospel centered and um not just gospel centered but some of the best preachers and communicators in this country forever but that's a whole nother uh discussion but yeah that's always been the case man we've never we've never had those resources we never had access to that stuff right and as far as it goes to blind spots i was just thinking as you were talking about the two biggest black eyes on church history universal church history and i think the first one that comes to my mind in typical conversations about the black eyes of church history is the crusades and the in- the inquisitions Oof. you know when mm-hmm. in the name of jesus and in the bible christians are killing muslims and killing anybody that wasn't a christian it was like conversion by sword right and and i and i think uh second to that or at least you know equal to that is american slavery and the mm-hmm. the, sl- the slave trade as a whole but when you look at american slavery this was where the church did two things. I mean, that what the northern churches were just bystanders, and it, it, it wasn't that they were righteous. The the only reason the north wasn't using slavery is because the the they didn't have the same plantations. They didn't have mm-hmm. the, the economic need for it. It was right. more of an industrial. You know, that you didn't have the same types of farms with the same type of labor needed. But it, so the northern church was was a spectator, and they allowed it to happen. And guilty then, by association. Guilty by association. And mm-hmm. then the southern churches, it wasn't just the eco- the economy or the government that was proponents of slavery. It was the church. I mean, you have the KKK very, uh, closely aligned with the Christian church. You have KKK leaders that are pastors. Uh, you you mm-hmm. have well-known theologians like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, that were slave owners. And... You know American theologians that are very well well renowned, and they're slave owners. And you can go through the the book Divided by Faith does a good job of, where they will show you photocopies of posters that were up of churches, and it was the biblical argument for slavery, and all these crazy arguments about how slavery um, was the like a method of evangelism, basically. Mm-hmm. So. We were, yeah, that, you know, was, that was Whitfield. That was Whitfield. Evangelizing these black animals and black heathens. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's no different than the Crusades. I mean, instead of conversion by sword, you're, what, conversion by slavery? I mean, I, it just, it's just wild to think about. And so back to Alan's question is, he's saying this is a blind spot in the church. And then so this white evangelical megachurch model now is like the model we all ascribe to be to. And what it is is... It's a model full of blind spots, is what it oh, is. Yeah. So, because the, that that church in the 1950s in America, the white evangelical church, uh, it was busy. You know, it was busy telling people about Jesus. It was busy evangelizing. It was busy doing ministry, even ministry to the poor, and all these kind of things. But what it what it did is it it never addressed the greatest evil <laughs> of the church, right? Mm-hmm. And it, that church was no different as it will let Jim Crow laws go on in our culture and didn't do anything about it. Then the church would have been in the, you know, the George Whitfield's church in the 1800s. That was, they were evangelizing. They were even evangelizing slaves, but there was there. The theology is so 
fragmented to, that, that, that you could separate, you know, Jesus saving you from your sins and this brutal act of slavery. Like, they, what I think what they did theologically is they took the kingdom of God and they divorced it from how to go to heaven. And Jesus <laughs> right. never did that. And, and my challenge would be, and I think this is what Alan is pointing out, is that the megachurch model does that as well. Yeah, the, the megachurch model with the, um, I believe, Peter Wagner, and Peter Wagner gave birth to a lot of what uh, Rick Warren uh, started popping off with the Saddleback Sam. And, I mean, that's just another form of segregation. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's funny. It's a form of segregation inside of the... Um, white community, not just because you, you know, the Saddleback Sam is the person between this age bracket and this. How, oh, this is how much Saddleback Sam is. Tell, tell, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Say, say what that is because I wasn't familiar with it, and I don't think most listeners are. But I, I know what you mean now. Who, who is Saddleback Sam? So Rick Warren planted Saddleback, uh, fill in the blank, such and such church, and Saddleback Sam was the was the type of person that we're aiming to reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that church growth, mega church stuff came from uh, before Warren. It was Peter Wagner wrote books on that. Yeah. And it was basically, you know, the easiest, fastest way to plant a church is to plant a monochromatic church. Right. You right, want right. that's why we go to the suburbs. We, we want to reach people who are like us, think like us, vote like us, act like us, um, because if it's, it's just faster. I was listening to. um uh, I went to a thing that uh, Ed Stetzer did. He just said most people don't want to plant diverse churches because it's slower. Yeah. It's just much easier to get a whole bunch of people just like you to get in the room. Everyone's comfortable. Um, there are certain questions you don't have to ask, certain questions and issues you don't have to deal with. You don't have to deal with poor people. You don't have to deal with uh, minorities bringing all their issues and baggage, so to speak. Right, right, right. So the Saddleback Sam is the prototypical person that you're trying to reach. So we go into a community. We want a person uh, between 25 and 40. Uh, They make about 100 and such and such thousand. I'm I'm generalizing, so to speak, but that's the method. We go after these people, and then they get their friends, and then they get their friends, and then they get their friends, and then we rent a high school, and then we get a band, and then we get smoke machines. (laughs) Then you look up in two two years, you got a couple thousand people, but they're all the same. They're all the same. Yeah. And anybody can grow a church like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's a flawed methodology because that, that looks nothing like the church in Acts. Right. The church in Acts had, one, they had minorities in leaders, uh, leadership, but the church in Acts, um, they had to have councils because, okay, now what do we do with these Gentiles? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do we, what, what, it was messy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'll close my side of this question with, I don't, I don't mean to say all mega churches are bad. I think it's Not easy. Not at all. It's easy, you know. We're not trying to paint with a broad brush, and in, in a, we're not trying to make a debate because, you know, they're evil or sinful. I mean, if you look at um, the uh, Acts chapter six is an example where you just had three thousand people come to know Jesus after Peter preached. That's a mega church, right? That's the first mega church. It's a now, huge church, yeah. Uh, now God scattered that mega church via persecution because they weren't doing what He said. I mean, He said, "Go to uh, Jerusalem." Samaria, or Ju- what, I forget the order, sorry, I should know this, 
Jerusalem, Judea, Judea. Sumeria, Samaria, and, and the ends parts. of the earth, right? And the yep. ends of the earth. And he puts all those in there. It's like your city, your region, your country, and the whole earth. But the idea was you're not supposed to all stay in Jerusalem, right? right. And, and that is what they did, and God scattered them. And so we, we can make an argument about that. But still, you have in Acts chapter 6, you have 3,000 people, and that's where you have the 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 Grecian widows and the Hebraic widows and and uh, they're not being fed and those sorts of things. Um, my point of what I said about megachurches is that the megachurch model, just like a small church model, is going to breed certain, uh, you know, n- negative things that, you, that mm-hmm. a, a pastor is going to have to do everything that they can to work against. Um, the large church model, the mega church model breeds, I think, some very obvious things the pastor has to work against. And one of those is it is much easier to separate the values of the kingdom from this, this value of we call it the gospel. And even in the movement that I support, like the Gospel Coalition and the Together for the Gospel and all these things, I think even in that movement, we, we've truncated the gospel too much. Like we've the gospel still for many people within that movement, maybe not leaders, but maybe leaders, I don't know, is still how to get someone's butt into heaven. And mm-hmm. I'm not s- talking about works-based salvation at all. I'm just talking about Jesus. I don't think, you know, Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, teach, baptize them and everything, you know, but teach them to obey everything I commanded. Part right. of the Great Commission was obeying Jesus's teachings, not right. just, I believe in Jesus for my sins, now I can go to heaven. And so it is, I think, innate within the structure of the megachurch, the white megachurch, the white evangelical megachurch, is this huge blind spot to not have to deal with issues of race. And that perpetuates racism. It perpetuated slavery. It perpetuated the Jim Crow laws because you don't have to deal with those things when your only concern is getting people into heaven. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying, and you can go too far the other direction where you have churches that only deal with social issues and oh they, don't, they don't deal at all with getting people into heaven. They don't deal at all with the Jesus needing to save us from our sins. And that's, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. We just, we, we embrace the whole Bible. We embrace the whole message of Jesus. And when we say we stand on the Bible, we mean it. We mean all of it. And that, to me, that really is what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, Paul said, I you know, I believe it was in Acts 20 uh, when he was leaving Ephesus. He said, I, I gave you the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. I didn't hold anything back. Yeah. I was here three years and I, I talked about marriage. I talked about sexuality. I talked about money. I talked about your idols. I talked about race. I talked about everything. I gave you the whole counsel of God. I gave you the gospel and how the gospel um, impacts our lives and the implications of okay, you believe in, you believe in this message. You've accepted grace. Now you become a person of grace. Now you become a, a a person that's gracious and forgiving. You you've been reconciled to God. Now you seek reconciliation with your brother, um, even if that um, even if that that bond has been broken over genera- generations. If we're truly reconciled to God, we should seek reconciliation with each other. That's what Paul was getting at in. Um, Ephesians 2 about the dividing wall being taken down. So I don't see how if we try to plant churches and start churches and continue churches that are basically just um, Christian forms of segregation and separation in our country, how how do we ever expect to get on the same page? How do we ever uh, expect to have true reconciliation? We, We have to get out of our comfort zones I believe the gospel compels that, even if it's 
um, segregation and separation that's been over the course of generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll close up the mailbag section with that. Thank you. You can send us your mailbag questions to bwtheology at gmail.com and on Twitter at bwtheology. And if you have a question sitting in our inbox, uh, we will get that. We will will get to it next episode or or the one after. We're going to move now to our topic of the day. Uh, We told you two episodes ago we did the subject of total depravity, and we told you that we were going to go through the TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, of Reformed Theology. And we took a break from that last week because of James Cone's death, so we interrupted that flow to talk about black liberation theology, but we're going to get back on track today, and we are going to talk about the U of TULIP, and that is unconditional election, and the point of this, I want to be clear, isn't that we are, well, Tyler is a reformed honk. What I mean by honk is he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's got the TULIP tattooed on his forehead and all these kind yes, of things. Uh, I am not a reformed honk. My history is I was raised in a Baptist church, and I don't know. Baptist churches are all over the map. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I think my youth pastor was pretty Calvinistic because he would uh, say things about predestination, and I adamantly disagreed. I mean, so somewhere along the way, I, be- I was very much an Arminian, and so I can really relate with the Arminian uh, point of view. I think there's some very legitimate arguments there. Uh, but full disclosure, you know, I, I went through B- Bible college in undergrad as a full Arminian, uh, arguing against any Calvinistic theology I heard. It was it when I was in seminary in my, my theology class with Dr. Mike Whitmer that, honestly, I just saw so much scripture about things relating to Reformed theology. I think there's still parts of Reformed theology that I, I critique or I say— you know, you don't answer that question very well, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say this, um, full disclosure, that I, 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 I am more Reformed now than, than not because of how much Bible there is to back up these views. And so, mm-hmm. um, but in that, I, I think what's helpful in the, what we want to do, one, is provide a foundation of theology. We, it's important that you have a theological foundation when you approach the Bible on things like health and wealth and prosperity gospel that there's some kind of foundation to fall back on. It's not just me looking at the text and adding in, you know, my opinion and my, my sort of thing. So that's why we're going through the TULIP. T, uh, we did total depravity last time. We're going to do unconditional election today. And uh, we, we want to m- help it make sense for you. You can, you can send us, ask, ask us any questions you want. We want to point you to where the Bible uh, talks about these things. And also, I, I, I'll show where I don't think um, certain questions are answered, or maybe some weaknesses that are that are there. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, within this view. So, uh, Tyler, do you want to start us off on an unconditional election, or do you want me to start off? Yeah, I mean, just a um, simple definition that I kind of came up with, just reading a couple of things. Um, election refers to God uh, choosing, God electing, God choosing before the foundations of the earth, um, who will be the object of His grace. Um, that's just a simple. Who, who would receive his grace, who would receive pardoning salvation um, based on his divine pleasure, based on his divine prerogative um, before um, we were even born to sin or uh, as many think to choose him. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I'll read some here from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it, it is kind of old-sounding language, so kind of bear with it here. It says, Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions, or causing him thereunto, and all praise to his glorious name. That's one paragraph, and to, mm -hmm. to translate that, basically it's saying, before the foundation of the world, uh, God, by his grace, uh, I'm trying to see, basically saved, you know, or, uh, the point of the first paragraph is elected. When, yeah, elected. elected, and when yeah. when someone is saved, that it's it's there's nothing in them. See, it's it's basically for those of you that struggle with this idea of unconditional election, and I and I understand why you do, and we'll get to more of that. What the the the, the reason I, I'll put the reason it makes sense as far as the the language that you're used to is we're saved by grace, not by works. I, I think mm -hmm. all evangelicals believe that. You know, Ephesians two eight and nine is very clear on that. We're saved by faith, not by works. So this takes that truth to the uttermost. I don't even want to say to the extreme because we usually think of extreme as negative, but it's saying if we're saved by grace, then we're saved by grace alone. So what does grace alone mean? It means that I'm not even good enough to choose this. That mm -hmm. God, that what grace means is that God elected me. It was his it was him drawing me to himself. I couldn't even draw myself to him. Uh, that that that's that's what they're doing here with this theology. And I, and I'll say this as I look through, um, you know, the L is limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. There's a lot of similarities to like unconditional mm -hmm. election and irresistible grace. But, yeah. but but the idea is it's grace to its uttermost. Because if I, I there's nothing in me that could save myself and even having getting to choose it is me saving myself so i'll read one more paragraph listed here for, for this this tulip uh the you from the westminster confession it says as god hath appointed the elect unto glory so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto wherefore they who are elected being fallen in adam are redeemed by christ are mm -hmm. effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Boom. Westminster mm -hmm. Confession. Yeah. I mean, I, just to add to that, um, one thing I always try to point out is, election or predestination or the choosing of God. God has always chose. That's just, that's not just a, a, a new Testament, um, thing. Mm -hmm. He chose Jacob and not Esau when in the womb. Yeah. God elected, God chose, God chose Abraham. Abraham was not seeking God. Abraham was with his family and God chose Abraham, called him out. So election is how God has always chose, according to his divine purposes and his divine prerogative. 
So it's not just something we see in the New Testament. It's all throughout Scripture. Noah, you know, just God elects, God chooses who he saves. There is a ton of uh, Scripture, that I, and, and, and we won't read all of it, but I will give you mm-hmm. some of the references if you, as a listener, want to write these references down. I think before we do, as we go through this, I think it's important to point out some of the Arminian critique of this doctrine in specific and sort of this mm-hmm. Calvinistic doctrine as a whole. I sent, I sent uh, Tyler some articles I found about kind of the biblical basis for the biblical argument that Arminians use, you know, for their view. And mm-hmm. one of them, I don't know if you saw this on the text thread, but it came up with a, like a thumbnail of the article. And mm-hmm. I, it's not actually on the article, but I'll, I'll read it. It's like a, I guess it's like a meme it says Calvinism, and then uh, a couple of the words are cut off, so I won't be able to read those, but it says Calvinism, the belief that, and this is a little snarky, and the snarkiness is not helpful, but I think through it, <laughs> you'll, you'll see that, you'll see that the legitimate kind of pushback. It says Calvinism, the belief that dot, 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 God causes all things, including sin, yet is not the author of sin. Next bullet point, God causes all things, including sin, yet gets angry at the sin he causes. Third bullet point, God irresistibly bends men's wills to faith and conversion, yet does not force anyone to be saved. And then it says in big letters, makes perfect sense. So, um, you know, those are some things that if you look at some of the Arminian websites and arguments, and if you are Arminian... You know, it's like, who is Arminian? Who is Calvinist? I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, Wesleyans are, def- are Arminian. Uh, mm-hmm. Methodists are Arminian. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, what, one, so if you've come from that tradition, you're probably Arminian. Uh, Baptists are all over the, the map. I mean, Everywhere. Reformed theology, you, you certainly have some Baptists. You have, obviously, the Christian Reformed Church. You have the Reformed Church of America that are Reformed. But then you have the... Um, the, Presbyterians. Know, the Presbyterians are Reformed, and within that you have this new Reformed movement. Um, within the Presbyterians you have the, the PCA, which is Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think John Piper's Baptist, but he might align real close with the PCA. But these, these are a different type of Presbyterian than some of the more theologically liberal Presbyterians. Uh, right. that, you're going to have very differing views on... on um, things regarding complementarianism or homosexuality or a whole bunch of things. But, but in general, um, there kind of is two camps re- re- with uh, oh, Acts 29 would be another reformed uh, movement as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gospel Coalition is another reformed movement as well, reformed theology, you know, so that, that, that we would. So, uh, and it's not, to, one thing that some reformed theologians just it gets on my nerves is they, they talk so demeaning and down a condescending right. about Arminians. And mm-hmm. uh, that needs to stop. That needs to, that yeah. really needs to stop. And um, so if you're Arminian, we don't feel that way about you at all. I mean, we, we, I don't, at least. I mean, uh, Tyler, right. I, I don't think you do either. 
No, I just disagree with you, but and, I mean, and we're still a brother. We, we can disagree, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are promoting the gospel together. I mean, in my church, for example, like we're not, my church isn't denominational, so I don't make people sign if they're Calvinist or Reformed, you know, or Arminian or whatever, in order to be a member of our church. There's, there's, but, but within that, we're still going to teach and preach biblical truth. And, and, and this would be my pushback on Arminian theology is if you go to a, a website arguing for Reformed theology or for Calvinism, you are going to find a ton of scripture. I mean, just mm-hmm. a ton of scripture. If you go to a website arguing for Arminian theology, you're going to find a lot of logic. You're going to find a lot of uh, a lot of reason and rationale. And some of it, I'm saying, look, I get it. Like, it it is logical what you're saying. You're saying things like, well, God's nature couldn't be this. You know, if He's loving, it couldn't be like this. God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't be like that. But there's no, there's I wouldn't say no. There's very little book, chapter, verse. Mm-hmm. And I got to a point, and, and uh, like I said, Dr. Whitmer was a big part of that, where I heard enough book, chapter, verse, I had to just bow my knee to God's word and say, I don't even like this, but this is what the word says. Yeah. And I became, I, 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 I not became, I began liking it when I began to realize the power and truth behind it. And I don't know if we'll have time to, to talk about all that in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, but I felt like at least I wanted to start it by saying that. And, and maybe I'll, I'll follow up on that more when we yeah. get into some of the other letters. I, I love, uh, I love Psalm 115 verse three. It simply says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah. Um, we he he saves who he desires to save. He, yeah. I, my favorite letter um, is I love I love irresistible grace. You know, I, I because again, I mean his uh, I believe it's in Romans uh, three or two somewhere in the beginning of the Romans says God's goodness leads men to repentance. You just get so overwhelmed by his grace, how he just, <laughs> how forgiving and patient and long suffering he is. It's just like, why wouldn't I follow this God? That, that, that's what, that's what brought me to salvation. I grew up in a, uh, United Methodist church, um, very weak theologically, um, my church in particular, I don't recall hearing the gospel and, you know, I, I you know, we all hard on the church, churches we grew up in as as kids and you know but i remember after clearly hearing the gospel and beginning to be rocked with reformed theology um i, I remember going back to that church it's like no i don't hear the gospel mm-hmm. i don't hear it i hear make i hear make the decision and do better yeah and that's and that's a lot of um armenian uh school of thought make a decision do better yeah um if that was the case humans would have never failed who, who 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 was closer other than other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who was closer to God than Adam what and what did he do yeah he fell yeah <laughs> you know what I mean so oh, yeah, it, we, we we have to we 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 are we are chosen by a all-loving all-knowing all-powerful God saved by that God and sealed and redeemed 
when we get to the P, the perseverance of the saints, we're sealed until he comes back. It's all the work of God. Every facet of our salvation is the work of God. I, mean, I often use the analogy, uh, it's my kids, when, when we take road trips, I'm the one driving. You know, they're sitting back. They're just, you know, willing participants. Um, God is doing all the driving in our salvation, and we, we just enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm. And we enjoy the benefit. We enjoy the benefit of being um, uh, instruments of, of his divine grace. It's just that simple, man. I don't. I, I, you know, again, I'm not, I'm some, some brothers go to the extent to say, you know, if you're Armenian, you're not saved, or if you're, you're Armenian, you don't, you're not a Christian. I'm not going to go to that extent. I love what Spurgeon says. Uh, Spurgeon, Spur, Spurgeon had a little snark to him too. Uh, <laughs> little, he had, a, he had a little sarcastic snap. He said, uh, I once was Armenian and then I believed the gospel and became a Calvinist or something along those lines. Uh, but terrible. I just, I know, but Spurgeon's my my guy. But I just I don't I don't I don't I don't see I don't see a biblical I don't see a biblical like you said a biblical argument. I don't see a biblical argument how broken, depraved, sinful humans who love their sin, who love their idols, even after salvation, for that matter, yeah. uh, choose to surrender all to 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 God. I don't I don't see that being a choice. I didn't choose that. You know, I just, I got rocked. I got rocked with the gospel. And I said, hey, I'm here. You know what I'm saying? It, I was, I was a willing participant of his, of his salvation. So uh, one, one passage I wanted to read, um, one of the main pass, pass, couple passages that speak to um, predestination election, Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, um, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons uh, through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose, uh, according to the purpose of his will. Again, we see we see before the foundations of the earth, we see predestined, we see adoption. You know, people who um, I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians who who, uh, have adopted recently, those children didn't choose those parents. Right. I mean, over and over again in Ephesians and in Romans, Paul gives this beautiful analogy of adoption. The adoption is the choice of the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus himself, John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, I, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, um, that your fruit and that you should abide in me. Romans, Romans 8, 28, um, for we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and Called according to his purpose. Again, called his purpose for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order in order that he may be the firstborn of uh, many brothers. Um, in him, uh, excuse me, and those he also predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I mean, all of this, it's just, it's a, it's a work of God's predestination God's calling by the Spirit and God's uh, salvation, uh, God's salvation and God's sanctification—all of it's a work of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, and one of the arguments that Arminians make about when Scripture says, you know, predestined, is that it's not referring to individuals that are chosen, and so they will read all those verses as saying. God predestined the church and God chose the church 
but not specific individuals. And so yeah, there's, huh? there's some, well, there's some helpful, and I'll, I'll actually put a link in the notes to this, this website, because mm-hmm. there's a ton of scripture. It's a desiringgod.org article, but it's got a bunch of backslashes and stuff to it. So um, I'll, I'll put it in there, and uh, I'm not a John Piper honk either. I mean, I think he has some great theology. He's uh, I don't I don't ascribe to everything you know that he says. Um, um, but well, you're not a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he's oh John. We might talk about him. Some of the stuff he said about about women uh, recently that know. <laughs> got him in some pretty hot water. Uh, but <laughs> That's it, funny. he probably doesn't even care, you know, because because uh, but but. Uh, so well, he I, doesn't own the TV or listen to the radio. So he doesn't know. <laughs> That's probably good. That's probably good. Hopefully he's not, a, you know, have a Twitter account either or anything. But anyway, my point is when I when I say a name like that, any, you know, it's, that's the problem with theology. We'll be like, uh, I, I almost have to preface every name that I say. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I like this part of him, but not this part of him. But my point is, right. Um, all right, so his website, desiringgod.org, has a lot of really good scriptural stuff about Reformed theology. And so this mm-hmm. article... It's just got a ton of scripture, and it addresses in that, like, one of the questions it addresses is that. So the question is, election individual, and are we in Christ because of God? And he, he lists out 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30, which I'll read, and then also James 2, verse 5, which I'll read. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mm. mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God mm. has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast <laughs> before God. That's an individual mm-hmm. man. Uh, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Again, just yeah. listen to that. Just close your eyes and listen. But by his doing, you, mm-hmm. are, you are in Christ Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30. Uh, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then the second verse is uh, James 2, verse 5 on is election individual. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just some helpful, uh, you know, one of the questions on here is election, the effect or cause of obtaining salvation, that is of foreknown faith. And if you're interested in that, you can read Romans 11, one through eight. And, mm. uh, you know, it, Romans 11 references, I won't read the whole thing, but it's referencing, uh, I'll read a couple of verses of it. It's referencing Elijah and it says, do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your idols and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. You guys remember this story? I believe it's mm-hmm. first, uh, Kings 18 and then flowing into first Kings 19 uh, with the prophets of Baal. And you remember what God says to Elijah? Elijah says, I'm the only one left. And quote, listen to this. I mean, there's, there's no, I just, I'm not being arrogant and hum, I just want to be real humble and just show scripture for what scripture is. These are the types of verses where I had to bow my knee and say, I'm, <laughs> I'm wrong. Like I'm wrong. God does choose. He chooses. He says, I have quote, I have kept for myself 
7,000 men who have not <laughs> who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I mean, God kept for himself seven. This is Old Testament stuff. Like you said, Tyler, yeah. God's been doing this since Abraham. I mean, as far as what we or Adams, you know, even. Um, and then uh, at the, the last verse of that, verse eight, it says um, Israel, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen, God obtained it. And here's about the rest. Listen to this. And the rest were hardened, just as it is mm. written. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down mm -hmm. to this very day. Now look, I think on a logical, rational level, yes, you can argue against that. And as a but as a Christian who believes the Bible, if you're arguing against that, you are arguing against the Bible. I don't know, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I, I get your argument. It makes sense to me. Like, well, how could God, why would God harden someone's heart? Read Romans 9. Like, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened mm -hmm. it. God did yeah. it. And it even says in Romans 9, he chooses to harden those he wants to harden. And he, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it in front of me. But he, he chooses to give grace to those he gives grace to. It's like, yes, sir. I get it that that seems mean. It seems unfair because I'm a very limited in the way I see things. But if you argue against that, you are arguing against the Bible. You, you cannot confidently say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. And I've always said I believe the Bible is the word of God. And it was seeing verses like this enough where I just said, God chooses people. He does because it's, it's, <laughs> it's scriptural. I just don't know any other way around it. Yeah, I, I also read a really good help, uh, really helpful article um, where Tim Keller breaks down three objections to the doctrine of election. Um, and, and the main question is just, why doesn't God choose everyone? Why doesn't God choose everyone? And Keller um, answers that, I think, in a really good way. Uh, he says, first, we must um, answer, uh, excuse me, the first thing we must realize is God's perfect in his nature. He's perfect in his righteousness. He's perfect in his uh, understanding, perfect in his will. So if you argue against that, you're saying you're arguing against the character of God. And, and he goes on to say some other really helpful things. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's just that simple. I mean, I, I, Psalm 115, verse 3 again. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He chooses. He elects. He condemns. He hardens. Um, and if you don't believe that, then, again, you're arguing against, A, the character of God and the word of God. So yeah. yeah. And there's so many scriptures on this page. I'll just read you some of the references. And then, like I said, uh, if you want to do more biblical study on this, we'll put the link in the show notes. You can find the show notes at atacrossroads.net and just search for black and white theology. Uh, man, you got and, and each of these verses is based on a question that someone would ask about <laughs> reform theology not really making sense. And the answer yeah. There's no answer given from Piper. It's not like, here's what I think in my explanation. He's just like, copy, paste. Acts, <laughs> so Acts 13, 48. John 17, 6 to 9. John 6, 37 to 39. Uh, John 10, 24 to 27. John 10, 16. John 11, 50 to 52. Acts 18, 9 to 10. I'll stop there because there's like 50 more. <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Um, but... What a, a couple a couple other thoughts I have uh, for, for, from this. One of them is, uh, wh what we're saying is this: 
And I, I have heard really good Christian friends say this. I used to say this. I used to preach this. You could find sermons of mine when I founded my church back in 2006 where I said these words. I said them because I heard uh, a guy named Erwin McManus say them. If you're familiar with him, he's a pretty well-known author, pastor kind of guy. And, it's, and, and, and this is a, a false statement based on these scriptures. Okay, I'll just say it that way. It's a false statement based on these scriptures. But it's around this idea of free will, and it's it's that, and again, this is a logical, rational construction, that it's not love unless people have a choice. So God, I've, I've preached this sermon, and you, and you may have as well. And I, so I just say it like we're we're I'm not better than you. I don't think you're terrible or bad or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, just last week, a friend of mine was guest speaking, and I heard, not at my church, but at this little men's event I went to, and he said these exact words in his talk. Um, mm-hmm. But show me the book, chapter, verse, right? So mm-hmm. so the idea is, God didn't create us to be robots. So if 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 there's no choice involved on our end then it's not love because it would be a programmed response. We must love God. And so we get to, we, we get to choose if we love God or, or we don't love God. And, and then from that springs a whole bunch of theology about how to do even evangelism and how to do the church and about eternal security and all these sorts of things. But I want listeners to understand that that statement cannot be backed up using the Bible. Now, I will say this as a nuance to it. And I think nuance is very important when it comes mm-hmm. to, to, to these sorts of conversations mm-hmm. that, um, and, and some reformed people will disagree with me on this. And this is what I'm saying. Like, I'm not you, a reformed honk because I think that you, you can, uh, you can find verses that'll talk about sure. And I don't have them in front of me, but there's, there's like, there's verses that say, um, like Moses will say, for example, off the top of my head, um, no, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, right? Mm-hmm. As for me and my family, we will choose to serve the Lord. That's Joshua 24. Moses says to the Israelites, choose life, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, here's the law. Choose life that you and your children may live. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews has tons of verses that are very, very provocative and, and strong verses about how we can reject salvation. We we can reject it. And it says, he's telling people, don't reject it. And so th- it's like we have a volitional will that can reject or choose or accept. And so, but, so I get it. I, and, and that part is scriptural, but we have to understand the Bible is not going to contradict itself. God is not a contradiction. So somehow within God being in control of everything and God electing everything, yes, I can say it feels like, in a way, like I chose to follow Jesus, but I know that the theological truth is God chose me. And every single person out there, for some people more than others, for some, you look at Paul on the road to Damascus, God blinded him God, for three days. I mean, that's God choosing, right? God chose Saul and he's and he blinded him and he had this radical conversion. He doesn't do that with everyone. Some people's mm-hmm. conversions are like that, where they see a vision and their heart is changed and it is like they are weeping and they didn't really make a conscious choice. They just got overtaken by God. For mm-hmm. others, it is a more rational, 
approach. Maybe they read a book like The Case for Christ and they said, you know what? Yep, um, I follow Jesus. I'm going to choose Jesus. But at the end of the day, God still elected you and he elected right. that process. And not an election doesn't just mean he knew about it. So that's another Arminian argument for knowledge. These scriptures that we're reading are not talking about God knew about it. It's saying he dictated it. He, yeah. he chose it. He made it happen. And so I think both of those can be held together with the theological truth. I think that the umbrella that's on top, the, the foundation is God chooses it. And he does it in a way where, I don't know a better way to say it. It still feels like we have a volitional will, but I have to bow my knee to God. Like he knows what he's doing. This is what he's revealed to me. And I cannot argue against the fact that he chooses it because scripture is very clear that he chooses it. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the whole, you know, if you don't have a choice, it's not love or God didn't make us robots. Um, Romans three, um, Romans three, verse nine. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already, um, for we have already been charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understand. No one seeks God. Yeah. <laughs> All have turned aside together and become worthless. No one is good. No one does good. No, not even one. So the whole, you know, it's not love unless you have a choice. It's not God didn't create robots. It's okay. If that was the case, we will all choose sin and no one would be saved. True. That, go that goes yeah. back. To, that goes back to total depravity. Good point. If, if, yeah. if the choice was up to us, we would choose sin, idolatry, death every single time because yeah. we are broken, broken sinners. Yeah. The only reason we are saved is because of his, his divine prerogative. He yeah. chose. Yeah. And, you know, if you read Romans 9, I won't read it because it's, it's really the whole chapter. But yeah. it is an argument for, if you want to call it robot, you know, I wouldn't use that word. I think using that word is what's making your argument sound the way it does against biblical truth. But if you want to make an argument for us being robots... Uh, Romans 9. It's, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's not me. Part of me is like, I wish that wasn't in the Bible, but it is. <laughs> so <laughs> read Romans 9 and just, you're like, wow. Wow. But, mm -hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, switch gears just a little bit, and this will be the last thing that I want to say on, on this subject, um, and we can move on. Or I, and if Tyler, if you want to give any of your closing thoughts on it. But for me, a big part of my journey, when I was an undergrad, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. My, my theology professor at Cornerstone University was Ron Mayers. And, uh, you know, he would, when he taught about Calvinism and Arminianism, I remember he did it in such a way, kind of knowing that our student body was diverse. And so he wasn't pushing us kind of one way or the other. <laughs> he was kind of, he was kind of, and I think a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian colleges do it this way, especially those that are, you know, non-denominational, but it's like, Here's the Arminian view. Here's the Calvinist view. Kind of write your paper on the one that you want to kind of back up biblically. And and he said, he in, in a joking way, uh, he, he said, you know, may, maybe you're a Calminian. Uh, may, maybe you're a bit of both. And I and I was kind of like, you know, I, I, I remembered that. And at the time, I, I, I acknowledged being a, a an Arminian in the way I wrote my papers and things. And then you fast forward to when I was in seminary and had Mike Whitmer. And, and, and uh, Dr. Whitmer definitely is a Calvinist. Uh, he's a Baptist. You know, he'd be like a Reformed Baptist, you'd call it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and he is definitely showing us the biblical uh, 
argument for reform theology for, for, for this sort of stuff. And he, at the time, I, I said, well, you know, I, I referenced this Dr. Mayer's uh, quote of being a Calminian. And in that, Dr. Mayer's had said this. There, there's some people that will say, I, so follow this, I sleep like a Calvinist, but I work like an Arminian. <laughs> okay. And the point being, as a big knock against Calvinism is, uh, well, if God's in control of everything and he's in control of who gets saved, why would we evangelize? Why would we mm -hmm. do, do missions? And we can talk about that, uh, and we probably will in a future letter. Uh, and so that's the idea was I, I sleep like a Calvinist, but I work like an Arminian. So I, at night I can, I can rest knowing God's in control. He's got this covered. But it, when I work, it's going to be, no, no, like this is like it's on me to save people because I, I got I to gotta do this, right? Because otherwise, if I didn't, I would just sit on my couch all day eating potato chips. And so, um, you know, I talked to Dr. Whitmer about that, and uh, we kind of laughed about it. And I was still in like the very early phases of becoming uh, reformed in my, in my theology. And as a church planter, that was the same time I, I was in the first couple years of planting my church. And I'm going to tell you this. That is impossible to do. You cannot sleep like a Calvinist and work like an Arminian. You either work like a Calvinist and then you sleep like a Calvinist, which means you sleep, which means mm -hmm. you, you know that God is in control and you know that it's not up to you to save the world. And that is a huge difference from working like an Arminian. And every single lost person you see you, your heart is so weighted that they are destined to going to hell if you cannot convince them. I'm not talking about just sharing the gospel with them. I'm talking about convincing them to become mm -hmm. a Christian. And then you have to live with that. You have to yeah. lay in Oof. bed at, at night and lay in bed at night saying, my church only has 20 people in it, which mine did for a while. And, and, and there's all these lost people out there in my head want so bad for these people to be saved and i'm arminian so it's up to me to save them you will not sleep you will get yep. depression which i sunk into a deep depression that i've been on depression medicine for for 10 years you will have anxiety you will worry constantly because it is all on your shoulders and let me tell you that is not the freedom of the gospel it is not, not the freedom of the power of jesus and and so i'm preaching here because that is the, that was the final straw in my conversion. I said, I don't mean I don't mean salvation conversion. I just mean <laughs> I, I just mean I went from one view to the ne to, to this other view, and it was saying um, I want to sleep. I want to yeah. sleep, and the only way to sleep is to sleep like a Calvinist. What that means is the stuff going on out in the world. And let me tell you, my yeah. evangelistic fervor has not waned. Uh, right. What it does is I have a peace about my evangelism now. I share the gospel and I can fully rest knowing God will take care of the rest. Whereas yep. before I could never do that. It was fully up to me to bring the harvest. And I'll close with this. I went to last summer. I went to a denominational conference of an Armenian denomination. I was there with a friend and it was kind of like PTSD. It was kind of like PTSD to my former my former Arminian way of viewing evangelism when I started my church. And this was a church planting conference. And I'm telling you, the, the, the sermons, it's hard to even talk about. I mean, I just get emotional because it, 
I left there feeling so condemned. I left mm. there feeling so, I am not good enough as a pastor. I am not good enough as a church planter. And I have to get out there and I have to do more work. I have to do more for Jesus because I haven't mm-hmm. done enough. And, I have, and I'm not enough. That is not the full freedom of the gospel. That is a works-based gospel. I mean, I don't mean you're, you're, you're working for your salvation, that they believe they're already saved in Christ and they are saved already in Christ, but they don't live in that. And, and I left there reminding myself that, no, that is not the biblical view of how God works. And I hope that that makes sense. And I, and I happily would like to mm. interact with others. Like I said, email us and, 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 and tweet to us, and, and we can interact in more real time on these things if it's you know related to something we just talked about. But um, that, that, that's why. And, and I, I, I even um, – I think that's why everyone should be Calvinist. Honestly, I mean, it's like because I wouldn't have survived as a church planter. I just wouldn't have survived if I had stayed in that Arminian way of thought that it all was up to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to piggyback on it because you said it all. But, I mean, I, just my own personal story, I, I I know for a fact that I was not pursuing God. <laughs> Bro, I was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was pursuing nothing but sin, death, and destruction. And God hit me between the eyes with the gospel. Yeah. It's just that simple, man. It's just that it, I experienced that. I was not choosing him. I was not pursuing him. That's my life. And then, oh my goodness. And then I read Ephesians and I read Romans. And then I started listening to uh, reformed uh, teachers like R.C. Sproul. I'm like, man, this is, I don't see why anybody believes anything other mm-hmm. than, than election. You know, I thank God for election yeah. because I, I was not, I was, I, if it was up to my choice, I would not choose God. Amen. Wow. I'm, I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor and I love Jesus. And some days I still don't choose him. Yeah. 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 Amen. Man. So this topic brings up to me, it's like the Pandora's box. There's lots of questions if you, and, and we'll get to some of them. But listeners, I mean, we want to hear from you. You can ask us questions. Well, if that's true, what about this? If that's true, what about this? And we'll do a whole show to talk about that question. So send us your stuff. We're going to wrap up this episode because we are out of time. We're going to save our Birmingham OG for uh, maybe next episode. We, we, mm-hmm. we did a lot in our mailbag today about race-related issues, so we will, we will let that rest there. Um, we wanted to – Tyler, did you want to make note about our, um, my, uh, my f- former favorite football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, before I, <laughs> before I, boycotted, before I boycotted the NFL because of concussions? I'm a lifelong Eagles fan. I did yeah. watch the Super Bowl. It was my uh, – I was on. A, I'm on a two-year boycott of football because of concussions, but I had to watch my boys in the in the NFC Championship game and the Super Bowl. And uh, so, some some quick news. Give us the five-second uh, news uh, about our, our our Eagles, my boys, and then uh, I'm going to close up this episode of uh, the podcast. Yeah, uh, the president. Oh, let me let me let me get catch myself so I don't be snarky and take a breath. Uh, cynical. Take a breath. Uh, um, I am not a fan of this man, uh, to say the least. So he, he released a statement. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles are not able to come to the White House with their full team to be celebrated tomorrow. They disagree with their president because he insists that they proudly stand for the national anthem, hold uh, hand on heart, 
in honor of the great men and women of our military and the people of this country. The Eagles want to send a small delegation, but 1,000 fans are planning to attend deserve better. Um, so he uninvited the Philadelphia Eagles to the White House because many, uh, article I read, most, if not all, of the black players said, we good, fam. We ain't going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> same, same thing with the Golden State Warriors. Um, so I, I, I promise I'm not going to hold on to this for a long time. But my issue is, this is the issue with with Trumpism. It's not just the man. It's the the what he has aroused in our country that that has been either hidden or latent for a long time. Mm-hmm. You, not one person decides what is patriotism. Yeah, you don't decide what is American. No, no one person, no one culture, no one ethnicity, no one class decides what is patriotism and what is un-American. You don't decide that. So, I mean, that really, that kind of ticks me off and pushes my buttons because I've been called un-American. Um, I've been called, I've been told to leave this country. I'm like, well, this is, I kind of was born here. I wasn't born in Africa. I've been told, I, li- I can post emails to people telling me to go back to Africa, leave this country. People sending me nasty things telling me I'm un-American because I have the audacity to question the infinite wisdom of this country and those who rule it. Um, rapper propaganda, a rapper slash spoken word artist slash genius uh, propaganda said in his song, uh, one of his songs recently said, I don't hate America. I demand she keeps her promises. Mm. You know, it's, it's not it's not a hatred of America. It's not a hatred of this country. No, but you said life, liberty and the pursuit for all in pursuit of justice for all. That's what you said. You said um, we were born with indelible rights. You know, you, you said that one nation under God. You said these things. So I'm here as an American born in this country. Demand you keep your promises. Yeah. That's what that that's what that's what the protest is all about. We as black Americans see injustice, see inequity, see uh, those who are poor, those who are black treated significantly less than and we're here with the receipts as they say yeah yeah and trump's uh comments come on the the what's the word i'm looking for they come on the the tail of maybe that's the phrase i don't know it doesn't matter of the nfl just made it a a law uh for their players a new Mm. a new rule and i and i don't follow nfl news like i used to but I believe the, the, the law, from what I can tell, I keep saying law, it's a rule. It might as well be a law. Is might as well, yeah. Uh, I'll clarify this, you know, for next episode if we talk about this because I don't have it in front of me. But from what I gathered from listening to sports, I listen to sports radio is where I got this information. But basically if a player kneels during the anthem during this season, if a player kneels, uh, their, their team will be given a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the field of play, so, something along those lines. And I don't remember, they may have the option of staying in the locker room. I'm not exactly sure. I need to look into that. But my, the reason I bring it up is because I'm going to close uh, this episode out with a video from Steve Kerr. Uh, this video was posted on uh, uh, our man Kyle Lake's Facebook page. Uh, Kyle is our youth pastor at Crossroads Church. And Shout out to my man Kyle. Good friends of uh, Tyler and, and me. And um, this video is from Now This Sports. And Steve Kerr, uh, a lot of you know that name. 
he is about as white as they come. You know, I mean, he, he looks just like me, except I don't think he can even grow a beard. I think if he wanted to. Uh, well, you but, really can't grow a beard, but that's oh, what I'm come saying. on. Stop. Just because I, choo- not a- I choose to trim my beard instead of like yours. You got like three month old Cheetos buried in there somewhere just because they're so thick. But anyway, Listen, the beard, I choose the beard. The beard chose me. I was predestined. <laughs> You have the James Harden beard going on. That's what you have. So, (laughs) uh, and and, and so, all right, here's Steve Kerr. It's a minute and 40 seconds. And the reporter is asking Steve Kerr. He's the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, They're in the NBA Finals right now. They're sort of the perpetual uh, NBA (laughs) champions uh, for uh, for ordained since the creation of the world. And so um, here's what a white guy is saying to this reporter, asking him his reaction about the NFL's uh, rule that players are no longer allowed, they'll be penalized uh, in-game if, if, they, if they kneel for the anthem. I'm going to kind of just end the episode with this video. Uh, Tyler and I will give kind of our very brief five-second responses, but it's more something I want to leave you with. Um, it may or may, I may or may not agree with everything Steve Kerr says. I might, I might not. I'd like to hear from listeners. What do you think? Do you agree with him? Do you disagree with him? So let's listen to Steve Kerr here a minute and 40 seconds. Reaction to the anthem. I think it's just typical of the NFL. Um, you know, they're just playing to their fan base and they're just, uh, you know, basically trying to use the anthem as uh, fake patriotism. Um, nationalism, scaring people, um, it's idiotic, but that's how the NFL has handled their business, and um, I'm proud to be in a league that understands patriotism in America is about free speech, about um, peacefully protesting, uh, and I think our leadership in the NBA understands that um, when the NFL players players were kneeling, they were kneeling to protest police brutality, to protest racial inequality. They weren't disrespecting the flag or the military, but our president decided to make it about that. The NFL followed suit, um, pandered to their fan base, that created this hysteria. And it's kind of what's wrong with our country right now. Is, People in high places are trying to divide, uh, divide us, uh, divide loyalties, make this about the flag, uh, as if the flag is something other than uh, what it really is. It's it's a representation of what we're about, which is diversity, peaceful protests, abilities, right to free speech. So it's really ironic, actually, what the NFL is. Bam! That's Steve Kerr. That's the mic drop for this episode. Tyler, you want to give me any thoughts on that, or do you want to just save it? Um, Kerr in 2020. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Very I, good. I, I just couldn't agree more. Yeah. I could uh, not agree more. He says some really insightful things there. I just think he, he's able to cut through a lot of the uh, eh, propaganda, I guess is a good word for it, out there. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, as he talked about it, it makes me realize how much power media really has Mm -hmm. nowadays. I mean, media as in social media reporting. If you, you know, just, um, wow, you know, the ability to create hysteria around things is is, uh, pretty wild. So um, I'll give more thoughts on that in a future episode, especially if listeners want to write in what you agree or disagree about what Steve Kerr said. I'd be happy to interact with you 
on that. But for now, we are going to close up the ice cream shop. The uh, chocolate and vanilla twist machine is going to get uh, closed down for the day. I so. don't accept that name. <laughs> um, so you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> We're going to get a new show jingle. Uh, no disrespect to James Garden. Shout out to James Garden uh, at James Garden Music, uh, who gives us our beats for this show. But I think we need like an ice cream uh, truck, you know, jingle, Oof. like Pop Goes the Weasel. And then here comes the chocolate vanilla twist machine, you know, and you can line up with, you know, don't, don't you think, Tyler? No, no, sir. That's how rumors get started. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> Well, I'm white. Tyler's black. We both yes, love Jesus. We yes, both we do. love you. We'll see you next time on the Behind. That's my other podcast. On the, uh... <laughs> Why does every podcast have to start with a B? Uh, the Black and White Theology Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll see you then. Peace. We won't really see you. I don't know why I say that. We'll, uh, we'll talk into microphones, and then you'll listen to us. <laughs> <laughs>